0: It feels a lot like the internet did during the late 80s or you know personal uh, smartphones did in in the early 2000s where it's it's like the wild West so you know from an investment standpoint, I think it's exciting because you get to, to help support the um, the development of this this thing that will eventually get to the point where we'll take it for granted right just like the internet we take it for granted it's just always here whereas there was a time in my youth where that didn't exist you wanted to talk to somebody you had to you know you hop on the phone we didn't have smartphones smartphones was the rotary dial on the on the wall Uh, but now it's it's prolific it's everywhere and i think the carbon markets will be exactly that it will be a market that is just here
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast. This is episode 57 of the show. I'm your host, Silas Maynard, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to bring this show to you, and I'm very thankful to you for tuning in. Before we get into the details of today's episode, we ask you please be sure to subscribe, turn on notifications, and let us know any questions you have that you'd like to be asked in the future uh, or possible topics that you'd like us to discuss. We can get some specific guests on for you if you have an area of interest. And of course, we also want to highlight our offering to you. If you are a founder with specific needs, we are glad to make any introductions or partnership um, connections that we might be able to do. This could be introductions to capital, uh, partnership opportunities, and perhaps you're looking for talent. There's a lot of different things we can do because it is our goal to help people in the climate tech space to uh, bring their technology to the market and to help make this, this transition. So reach out and we will help in any way we can. So with that, let's get into the details of today's episode. Uh, Today, we are speaking with Jason Cardiff in a very exciting discussion about how they are capturing carbon through their boiler systems and then using that carbon in cleaning products. Uh, Overall, the concept is quite simple, but it's very exciting what they're doing and uh, what can come next as they continue to develop their technology to be deployed on a larger scale. Um, The name of Jason's company is clean 0 2 so if you want to check it out as you listen, maybe look, learn a little bit more as you go. Um, one thing to note about this conversation, I really appreciated hearing Jason's experience that kind of led him from maybe what most people will call a blue-collar background uh, to becoming a founder of a very complex and deep science technology company that is helping advance the climate tech solution. So very inspiring to me as somebody who kind of comes from that background and my family is from that background as well. So very, very interesting. Uh, Before we get into the show, we want to make thanks to our sponsors, NextWave Partners. Uh, NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, ESG, and technology spaces globally. So if you or your team, uh, if your team is growing or you're personally looking for a career change, do reach out to NextWave. You can do that through their website at next-wavepartners.com, or you can reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. So without any further delay, let's get into the show. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the show, Jason. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing pretty good. How are you?
1: I am fine as frog hair, as my dad likes to say. Um, I'm, I'm having, a, having a good day. As we talked before the show, it's a great day in New York City, so I can't complain. Um, yeah, let's, let's start off things right away. Just give us kind of a quick introduction to yourself and, and what you're doing today.
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, Jason Cardiff. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called Cleano Two Carbon Capture Technologies, and our company is focused on the decarbonization of the commercial heating industry.
1: Okay. And so, how did you how did you end up getting into this space? I'm keen to understand kind of the early early parts of your career, how it all evolved
0: into what you're in now. Well, I'm, I'm probably one of the only uh, one of the fewer, at least one of the only uh, plumbers that. Uh, I started a carbon capture company based on uh, just a desire to try to to learn more about my industry. Um, It came about from just asking questions, just wondering if the world was going to move towards decarbonizing various activities. And I was involved in working on heating appliances that require the use of natural gas. What did that mean for me in five or 10 or 15 or 20 years? when you know my career was likely going to change. And what I discovered was that nobody seemed to have a clear answer because everybody was focused on large emission sources of greenhouse gases. They weren't looking at the smaller ag- uh, aggregated sources of G- uh, GHGs. So I just, uh, like I said, just started asking questions. And when I didn't understand something, I, I found people that did understand and associated with them and brought them on and they became co-founders and we sort of collectively all started moving in this direction of continuing to ask questions and creating solutions that could meet that end goal of, you know, starting off with reducing emissions and eventually completely, uh, our goal is to eventually completely eliminate those emissions.
1: Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm kind of fascinated to understand maybe in more detail how, like what, raise the question of climate because a lot of people when they're in a profession like that I might I actually grew up working for my dad who's a carpenter right so like I, I'm familiar with some of these kind of things we actually oh. I one of my some of my favorite memories of childhood, are building our house that we lived in right so I remember remember going through that and I'm just kind of curious like what ended up getting you thinking about this I know that Canada tends to be a little bit more progressive on these items but I'm just kind of curious what really laid the seed to realize hey we, we need to kind of work on these things or was it simply out of kind of Hey, I need to make sure I'm I've secured my future in terms of my my labor, my working, my working life.
0: It was it was I think three factors. One, you know, I I uh, I spent a lot of my youth out in in the wilderness around uh, the city that I was born in, Calgary, Alberta, and I appreciate nature. I enjoy it. I see it as a necessity. Uh, so it's something that I want to help steward and take care of. Uh, and then that sort of also developed at the same time of watching my dad build things in his garage, you know, watching him innovate and seeing that anybody can come up with a solution for something. It's not, a, you know, it's not a select group of people, really. Any one of us has the ability to go out and, and create solutions to, to, to problems. In fact, I, I think that's one of the core values of our species is that we are problem solvers. Uh, so from that, it just sort of developed into a lifelong passion of, of thinking outside the box and innovating. And then, you know, I, I, I became a plumber and a gas fitter and, uh, you know, always tended to look at things a little bit differently. And then, you know, the news articles started coming out about the concerns associated with greenhouse gases. And I, I didn't understand the principles of global warming and, and what carbon emissions, uh, equated to so I educated myself and I had a lot of questions and uh, one thing just led to another and yeah and then we ended up developing this this platform uh, with the help of a number of other very talented people who've, who've now allowed me to sit in this chair.
1: That's interesting yeah I, I always find it fascinating this, this this kind of we all have something in us right that just like keeps us asking questions and uh, I love to see how people change. A lot of people come from, I think, an area like yourself where it's something that you wouldn't say, hey, that person's going to go on to do some kind of climate tech company. Um, but it's actually those people who work in, you know, maybe unrelated or seemingly at least unrelated industries that know the solutions, right? They know the problems uh, that are faced by the by the industry and how to fix them. So I think it'd be good before we go into specifically all the things you're doing with Plano 2 could you maybe give people who are unfamiliar a little bit of an uh, overview of kind of what the circular economy is because as I understand it it's kind of kind of how your business kind of operates is in this in this realm.
0: Yeah, sure. So the the idea of circular economy is this notion that we, you know, when I was growing up is reduce reuse recycle, right? So for us the circular economy is kind of an extension of that where whatever waste products we produce we repurpose into something so that we can reuse them again. And then they can go back into this cycle where it can produce, be, uh, where it can produce something else. And then once again, it's, it's constantly use and reuse. So in our case, what we do is we divert carbon from entering our atmosphere and converting it into a stable compound. That compound is then converted into a product that product is then used. And then instead of the carbon being emitted into the atmosphere, it is stored or it is, it is kept in a solid form that ends up going out into our, to our watersheds as a natural component of, of, uh, of the world. It's a carbonate, it's readily found everywhere. So I'd much rather have it in the form of a mineral in our, in our watershed than as a gas in our atmosphere interesting so
1: so just generally speaking this idea of taking things that have been used for something and then at the end of their life turning it back into something else um, I'm always curious maybe, I don't know if, how deep you can help us understand without maybe losing me but could you help understand help us understand a little bit about the the chemistry on how this is done when you kind of take carbon and then turn it
0: into something solid sure yeah so we take uh, potassium hydroxide or or a koh is the so it's the, uh, the symbol for potassium hydroxide and potassium hydroxide or hydroxides in general, they have an affinity for carbon dioxide. They like the like stuff. So as you pass uh, carbon dioxide over a bed or, a, or a, um, a vat of hydroxide, that hydroxide absorbs the CO2 and it gets converted from KOH to K2CO3 or potassium carbonate and water. Uh, so our process just takes a, an established, very simple chemical process and converts one chemical into another chemical that makes that carbon bound, bound up in this, this mineral that is then used in, in other, uh, other processes. and products. Mm-hmm. What are some
1: of the other, well, maybe we should back up a little bit. Um, I'm keen to understand what the other, what the products that can be used in. I think there's a lot of applications, but. Yeah. Maybe could you yeah, could you give us a kind of like a, a really m- more deep dive now? Obviously you mentioned at the beginning, but a deep dive into what CleanO2 is doing and the different kind of business models that you guys have uh, and in order to to achieve this goal of decarbonizing the, the HVAC space.
0: Sure, yeah. So our technology works in mechanical rooms where we divert a portion of the flue gas from natural gas fired appliances. We plug it into our equipment, our equipment processes the CO2 component of that fluid gas and converts hydroxides into carbonates or locks up that CO2 in the form of a carbonate. Then that carbonate is collected and processed and we recharge that system with new hydroxide, offload the carbonate and then uh, we then take it somewhere and have it converted into a product and that product is then is then sold on the, on the open market. And then the money that we make from that helps us advance our technology. We reinvest all of that money back into research and development. And then a, also a portion of that goes back to the customer. So they get the return on their investment. So the analogy that we like to use is that it's, a, it's like an urban mining platform where um, we sell our customers mining equipment and they give us the right of way to operate it to process the CO2, convert it into a commodity, sell the commodity, share the profit with our customers, and then we sink all that money back into research and development so that we can, instead of right now, we're hitting about a 20% reduction in greenhouse gases, our goal is 100%. So next year, we're coming up with a new model that'll hit 50%, and then the long-term is, of course, to get to 100%. And those products are, are really varied. Uh, carbonates are used in multiples Uh, of of industries right now we're focused heavily on the personal care market so you know body bars hand wash uh, shampoo bars conditioner bars that are coming out here fairly soon Um, we can do car wash detergents we can do laundry detergents we can do general purpose cleaners and sanitizers Um, but it's used in other industries too that we're that we're exploring Uh, fertilizer is a great example it could be used as a as a as a, a component of a fertilizer, NPK is a is a is a fertilizer. It's nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. We got the potassium covered. Uh, it's used in pharmaceuticals. It's used in textiles. It's used in foodstuffs. It's used in glass. It's used in. It's really is quite varied. The reason why we focus on soaps and detergents is that when you have a conversation with somebody around carbon capture, you tend to lose a lot of people during the conversation because you're talking about aggregates like concrete or you're talking about biofuels, which are cool. These are important things, uh, but they're not really tangible to the to the general person. Uh, in the case of a bar of soap, you know, we all use soap, at least I hope we all use soap. <laughs> uh, and I know a few people who probably could use a little bit more soap, but uh, coming from a plumber background anyway, um, so we uh, we want to create a tangible good that can open the conversation with people to have this discussion around climate change, energy literacy, greenhouse gases. It works as a wonderful tool uh, to uh, to start that conversation.
1: So that's quite fascinating. I'm, I'm curious, just like a side tangent here. When you talk about creating uh, more literacy around climate change and energy, energy efficiency. Are there any things you guys are doing with the actual products and the packaging to help kind of teach people a little bit here and there? Because I feel like this is something I find very interesting that usually companies want to go after the big commercial types of ideas where they can just make you know loads of money, which is obviously, of course, required to continue the business, but you're focusing on a more direct to consumer product or, or model. Could you explain a little bit about how you're actually making you know, people more aware?
0: Yeah, so you're right. The packaging, uh, we use uh, uh, FSC-approved paper and cardboard packaging on our body bars. Uh, We're trying to get away from plastic as much as possible. It is a really challenging thing to get away from plastics, especially when you're a small-scale startup company. Uh, I think we've done a pretty solid job. Um, We're slowly working it out of our production, but we've got a little ways to go yet. But in terms of the messaging, the the, uh, the the body bars, for example, tell a story. It's When you grab that box of, of your, your body bar, it talks about, you know, how this bar of soap embodies the carbon, what it means to create a quality product. We also talked about what goes into the products beyond the carbon. Uh, we don't use palm. We, I, you know, I always sort of, Pointing out that you know, whenever time I hear somebody saying they have sustainable palm, I think well, the rainforest that was there was probably pretty sustainable too. But you know, uh, so we don't use palm in our in our products for that reason. It's a personal. All of us agree that it's just not a it's not a good component. But it's very it's in everything. So it's when we say we don't use palm, it's it's really challenging to do that. so and and then beyond that, uh, we have our websites. So you can go to either cleano2.com or carbonx.com, or sorry, cleano2.ca or carbonx.com uh, to learn more about what it is we're doing. And it's not just about selling products; it's about educating. Them. It's about explaining what it is that we're doing uh, from from an average person's perspective. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting because obviously,
1: I think this is something I've written about in some of the blogs that we've put out through clean techies about consumer products, right. Creating more sustainable products. And it's easy to go look on Amazon for what is considered sustainable. But the reality is every time I think about this, I'm like, how sustainable is it? Right. Like <laughs> how do we actually know there's really no way for me to tell unless I'm going to go
0: spend three hours researching, you know, which Tupperware to buy. Right. Um, well, yeah. And it's kind of funny too. Cause there's, I mean, obviously in the, in the clean tech and the climate tech and, viral tech worlds, there is a lot of greenwashing that's going on. And I find that kind of funny because we're making soap. So I guess in a way <laughs> we're greenwashing too, but in a good way. Yeah, um, changing,
1: so, changing the. the yeah, the exactly. We're, yeah. we're
0: taking the word back yeah, to mean something good. Um, it's very challenging to, to do that and, and do it in a tangible way that people can understand because it's it's a complex subject carbon emissions and carbon reduction strategies are complex and the solutions are equally complex. So to be able to simplify the message is difficult at times. And it starts with everybody needing to create tangible outcomes for the general public to understand rather than, you know, getting caught in the weeds with trying to explain something from an engineering standpoint. I mean that's cool. I love you know listening in on those conversations around the engineering associated with everything from direct air capture to larger scale capture processes. Those are really cool, but that's me. you know if I'm somebody just at a grocery store and I just want to go and get some groceries for dinner that night, I may not want to talk about you know some industrial process that's going on in my town.
1: Yeah, I think that's, very, that's a really good point, is, is um, the most important thing when people come on here is to help people, you know, explain it in kitchen table terms, right? Helping understand, like, what's going on. Yeah. I think that's the whole reason why so many people are skeptical of climate change sales, so because they, they've no, they've had no, like, regular person explain to them, like, how it works. It's not, you know, we don't need a PhD to, uh, to understand the basics, right? So I think that's very commendable. And this is a question I was going to ask later, but because you mentioned it, I'm, I'm keen to understand for you as I would say, you know, generally speaking, a non-technical founder, right? You kind of came from a, from a trades background. How was starting a company like this, where there is a lot of engineering and science involved and finding your partners and like, how how did that work for somebody like yourself? I'm very curious to understand.
0: Uh, So this isn't my first business that I tried launching and the earlier businesses all fail because I failed to acknowledge the importance of surrounding yourself with Good people, and that you can't do it all yourself. You need other people. So that was a, a hard lesson to learn. And the farther I went down, you know, the proverbial rabbit hole with this business, the more that became very, very apparent. Very quickly, uh, you know, I've, I've used this example before, where I remember during the early days of attending. Uh, there was a conference that was held here in Calgary. Uh, around industrial scale carbon capture. and I showed up and you know people sort of mingle a little bit and you know what do you do? what, what university you're from? What is your course? And then there's me and I'm like, what do you do? I'm like well, I'm a plumber. Oh, you're coming back to be an engineer. I'm like, no, I'm just a plumber. And you know they kind of look at you funny, like sort of wondering, what the hell are you doing here? And you know mm-hmm. like you don't belong you shouldn't be here. So I had to deal with a lot of, you know, school of hard knocks of a lot of stuff that, you know, flew over my head. In, in terms of explaining what it is that we were trying to accomplish, but I was very fortunate to have people that got the fact that, you know, I was dealing with a problem that nobody seemed to be really looking at. And that was the aggregated sources of GHGs. Uh we need natural gas to stay warm during the winter months, but we've got this horrible problem associated with carbon emissions. So how do we solve it? So rather than looking at that one big stack down the street that's belching it out into the atmosphere, or the millions of cars on the roads, what about the furnace and the boiler in the home? What about those? Oh well, what do you know? Yeah, that is a problem. Well, how are we going to fix that? Well, I have an idea. Um, see, so patience is a virtue that you should have. Um, um an, on uh, an inability to let go of things is probably helpful um, not very good for your marriage but you know um, I'm still married so that, that must say something about my life um, yeah so there's it, it was challenging it was very 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 challenging I could talk at length of all of the the uh, mistakes and mistakes mm. along the way
1: yeah I think that that's definitely very helpful to understand and I think it's something that I, I'm trying to, I don't even know the number, but there's been a number of people on this show that have come from a non-technical background and sim- face similar things, right? Where especially with the, I don't know if you want to say academia, but just people who are really well-educated in certain kind of science or, or engineering kind of being like, hey, wh- why are you here, right? <laughs> and it's like, th- those, those are the conversations that need to be had because it's those two people who don't know what each other knows, right? So you can kind of take that, that gap of knowledge and bring it together and create something actually really cool. Um, so when you guys started and you kind of decided you, you got a team together and you decided, Hey, we we know roughly what we're going to be doing here. How did you go about getting started? What was the first like minimum viable product that you created? Was it something you guys had to engineer from scratch? Were there other solutions you were able to kind of piecemeal together? How did that work? Because I'm very fascinated always by hard tech companies, something that's not just software or, you know, IP that's being licensed out.
0: Yeah, originally the technology was focused on the single detached market <laughs> space. And uh, we originally were going to, Kathy Fisher, our chief science officer who i worked with since the very beginning was helping me explore a uh, type of um, uh, resin that could absorb uh, CO2 in, in water. So the thought was that we would work along the lines of what a water softening system does, where we we we, we force the, the CO2 into deionized water. That deionized water goes over a um, through a, a chamber with this uh, this um, uh, type of material that could, that could it would this the carbon dioxide would attach to. And then the water would then be, you know, deionized again and we just go on a continue loop and eventually you would change out this filter medium. And what we saw in, in the early test was that, you know, it was working but barely we were getting like maybe a one, maybe 2% drop in overall GHGs from this condensing furnace that I had in my home. And um, it just wasn't enough and then I saw an article in the newspaper about a university led project that was using sodium hydroxide as a, as a capture medium for direct air capture. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, We use that chemical as a neutralizing agent in the HVAC industry. So I happened to have some, and I not only had some, but I had some in my basement where I had this equipment of this, you know, who doesn't have sodium hydroxide in their basement. I was, by the way, I was using sodium hydroxide, not potassium hydroxide at the time. So i I just dumped some into the system without asking Kathy Fisher, who's the chemist, what the outcome <laughs> of that action would be. Like, ah, it's a chemical, throw it in, no, no big deal. And um, it, was, it was wonderful. The, um, the sensors lit up. There was this beautiful drop of CO2 concentrations through our exchanger. And there was a spike from the heat that was gained from the exothermic nature of the chemicals and it was like the light went on I, I actually I think I remember dancing in the mechanical rooms I thought oh we found this this is this was our eureka moment and um, around that time I started thinking like oh well you know this is a caustic material what is that doing to my aluminum plate exchanger hmm I should probably check that out so then I opened it up and I looked inside and we had a little solvent tank in inside and it was frothy and bubbling and it was like well that's that's not good. And, uh, you know, I talked to Kathy and, you know, she informed me that when you expose hydroxides with aluminum, you get hydrogen gas. So when you expose hydrogen gas to an open flame, like say from a furnace that might be attached to said appliance, you get the Hindenburg. So, so yeah. So I quickly flushed everything out and, uh, didn't blow up my house. And uh, from there, we realized, okay, well, aqueous processing isn't going to work. We realized that doing it a single detached home isn't going to work because of the collection cycle, but it would work in the commercial field where I did a lot of my work. So then we just adapted it to dry chemical, no aluminum, <laughs> and, uh, and a much bigger scale for for commercial properties. And then we moved it over to potassium because there was an arbitrage play in the potassium market that didn't exist in the sodium market so that was kind of how it all sort of ended up at uh, at this point
1: that's that's pretty fascinating i think um i love i love that story by the way that's that's great that's a really good story to be honest um yeah that's that's great to hear kind of how you had some kind of basics and you were able to really just test it out and then be able to go i think the difficulty a lot of times is that there's kind of something that's in theory right you've got people from um top universities who have some kind of theory proven but they don't have maybe a real pilot or something like that right they need they need to go build something and then when it comes to manufacturing on scale it gets very difficult um so let's talk a little bit about your customers uh you mentioned that you shifted from kind of this idea focusing on on individual homes to to the commercial space so could you talk about who are your typical customers and maybe what is the what is the process of you know installing this look like is it is it a very arduous process or is it pretty pretty easy to flip out? Um, maybe you talk about the rate of return for these people, kind of return on their investment, et cetera.
0: Sure, uh, yeah. So we have um, customers ranging from rec centers to hotels, aggregated residential complexes like condominium complexes, <laughs> assisted living complexes, uh, laundry facilities. Um, I think we're looking at a hospital, I think where it might be a good fit. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the scale of, of our typical customer, um, and then from an installation standpoint, given my background in in commercial HVAC plumbing and heating, I um, designed it so that it would be a very simple thing to install. It didn't, we wanted to make sure that it wasn't arduous. It's really no more complex than installing a commercial hot water heater. There's there's not a lot of a lot of work to put these things in, I think the shortest time we've had to put one in was about three and a half days start to finish. Um, That included the delivery the placement of the unit and then all of the piping and wiring so we're able to turn them around fairly fairly quickly and we have units. In British Columbia, we have units here in Alberta we've got units down in Minneapolis. Uh, we've got some units that are due to be shipped down to uh, Oregon. We've got units in Japan, and uh, we've got some other projects around the world that are that are coming online. So, so it's it's pretty exciting to uh, to be on board at this this stage. But um, yeah, it's it's a fairly simple and straightforward install. And then the ROI, we, we try to get it under five years. So right now we're paying out a dollar twenty per kilogram Canadian uh, potassium carbonate produced. And then we also account for the fact that we're providing trained HVAC technicians at no cost to our customers. so We can do preventative maintenance every couple of weeks. And then there's an energy savings component with us because there's an exothermic component of the chemistry and natural gas fired heating appliances typically waste a fair bit of heat. We pull that combined heat back into the building to offset the amount of energy needs for the building. And that's best used for domestic Water heating: the water that comes into your building uh, when you turn on your tap is quite cold because it's coming out of the ground, and that stays pretty constant uh, temperature year-round. And then you plug it into your hot water tank or your boiler to get it to whatever temperature you want. So there's quite a delta T between those two points. So what we do is we interrupt that um, amount of of, uh, uh, we, we interrupt that water, and we. Offset the amount of energy need, needed to get that same end result of the amount of energy needed for the building. So, you know, instead of going from say 10 degrees Celsius to, I don't know, say 60 degrees Celsius, we're able to get that water temperature of say 20 to 30 degrees Celsius to 60 degrees. So that means that, that you need less energy to accomplish the same thing. The other thing that we get called out on a regular basis too is like, oh, well, you know, the energy consumed for all of this is you're pulling it from electricity it's you know greater than the amount of carbon you're offsetting and that's not the case so our systems only use about maybe 250 to 300 kilowatt hours per year so it's no more energy intensive than a residential refrigerator oh really wow interesting
1: so so generally speaking to recap that because of the software because of this this technology they're reducing their energy costs because uh-huh. of the heating, right? Is able to do it more efficiently. And then in addition, they have the offtake uh, sales of the of the carbon that comes out. And that all together can usually get their like return on their investment of the furnace down to about five years, usually.
0: Three, three to five years. Yeah, it depends on how often the appliance runs, but yeah, mm-hmm. we, we, we really believe in getting a short-term ROI for our customers. And that's mm-hmm. where the economics, your comment earlier about economics is really sound because that's important um there's an urgency associated with needing to address carbon emissions but the the world we live in says that economics in most cases will will trump that currently so you need to make a really strong and compelling economic argument in favor of what we're doing rather than Mm -hmm. just being focused on dealing with you know nothing big like i don't know climate change Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's interesting because obviously since so many companies have realized the necessity of, of having the economics work out, um, we've got investors piling in by the billions, right, um, piling billions and billions of money to uh, to help uh, address these things because there is an out- outcome, right, um, so obviously uh, free market still still prevails, right, and um, I'm interested in just one last clarifying question. What is the how does the offtake work? Does somebody have to come in relatively, you know, often and kind of take out the stuff? How, how does that usually look?
0: Yeah, um unlike the mechanical room in your home where you can afford to be reactive when something goes wrong, in a commercial setting, they have to have ongoing preventative maintenance. And I I've, I've been doing this a really long time and I've seen you know, I've seen daily preventative maintenance. I've seen weekly. I've seen monthly. And I've seen buildings that don't have any preventative maintenance. And I can tell you with a great deal of certainty that the company, the buildings that don't have any preventative maintenance or quarterly preventative maintenance, you know, certainly look a lot different than the ones that have it more frequently. So, uh, so we tie into uh, the existing mechanical contractors looking after the building, and then we pay them to go in every two to three weeks to do a collection cycle. And that whole cycle takes about 30 minutes. And then while they're there, because they're have, they have to go there anyways for preventative maintenance, uh, we just pay them for their time and say, check out the appliances that we're attached to, make sure everything's running properly, make sure you're adding value to your visit, not just doing the collection cycle, but uh, looking at these other components as well. So um, yeah, so every, every two to three weeks is, is usually when somebody shows up to do the collection on average. And then do you
1: just partner with those same people to to do pickups, facilitate pickups at their, you know, major facilities, so it's not like a huge route or anything?
0: Yeah, and we, we should also add that we try to keep it local. The last thing we want to do is is capture carbon in New York have it turned into a chemical and ship it to Los Angeles to turn it into soap and then have that shipped to Tampa to sell on a shelf somewhere so that somebody mm. can get $1.20 per kilo. So, uh, so our focus is that if we're operating a unit in New York, we would work within that region to have it converted into a product. And then that product would then be used uh, in that area. A great example of where we can really dial that in, in terms of the circular economies like a hotel, So we can capture the carbon emissions from the hotel, Mm. convert it into the commodity, turn it into the cleaning good that gets brought back to the hotel to be used. And whether that's laundry or those little bars of soap or whatever, um, it's all about supporting that circular economy piece as well. That's actually really fascinating. I'm curious
1: how that's going to be relatively complicated when you enter a new market. How do you go about finding all those people to to support that kind of supply chain locally to, to manage it?
0: That's the great thing about the plumbing and heating industry is that all of those resources are already present in all of these cities. You got plumbers and heating technicians just working away uh, in these places. The trades are kind of the foundation of all of these great big buildings that we live in. And uh, so that's there Uh, in terms of soap and detergent manufacturing. Chances are pretty good. That's probably in that region already as well. all of the things we need to make this business model work can function anywhere, regardless of region, because we do things within the confines of what's already being done within that building or within that region.
1: Mm-hmm. One last thing: I, I have a whole set of other questions. that I got to, but this this has come up in my mind is well, a lot of people, at least growing up, this is what I heard: a lot of people complain that you know, cl- clean future or clean energy, green 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 energy, et cetera, is going to take away jobs from people, right? So I'm curious, you know, obviously, I I think people already know the answer if they're paying attention, but could you explain how you work with existing HVAC professionals to just kind of upskill them or, you know, what the actual impact is for people like in this space?
0: Yeah, we're all about job growth opportunities. We're about creating jobs. We're about adding value to existing infrastructure that's You know, you've you've got your technicians that are going into the building or providing opportunities to give them reasons to go into these buildings to do work. Because it's, once again, it's that preventative maintenance piece. If we have a technician going into a mechanical room to do a collection cycle, and they happen to go in there and they see that there's something that's broken that they can notify the customer. Well, now we've not only added value by keeping that system running for the customer, but we've created a job growth opportunity for that technician to go on to do the work. And I think of all of the commercial buildings around the world, there's a tremendous amount of work that that clean tech is going to be providing for these types of situations. So I see the exact opposite. I, I you know, I don't I don't see clean tech as a as a liability to society. I see it as a 100 um, percent asset. And, you know, I guess the one thing I hear, too, is well, they want to retrain. Like, well, in our case, you're not being retrained. It's the addition of work isn't anything different than doing a, like if you've got water softening salt delivery service to a building, we're kind of the same as that, or a, a water bottle delivery service or an HVAC PM preventative maintenance service. Like we're using existing skill sets mm-hmm. to do exactly the same thing only in a better and more efficient way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, obviously there are probably some industries that do have this where there has to be training, sure. but I think there's so many examples I've seen where it's relatively easy, right. To train, to, to change anything, or in this case, not really change anything at all. Just kind of give them a two, two minute rundown. Right.
0: Yeah. exactly. Um,
1: so, okay. Let's, this other thing I was curious about is when I I was just it was kind of fascinating when I came across the business was how did you guys manage the, the brand aspect of kind of the selling the soap, but really underlying it's a technology. I think there's an ice cream company that does this too, that, they have this ice cream brand, but ultimately they create, they, they own the refrigerators that kind of, or the freezers that maintain these. So I'm just kind of curious how you've managed this brand and everything and how, how it's been either good or challenging for you.
0: Uh, well, the brand has been in development since it came up with a name uh, back in, oh God. So I started on this in 2005 and I think it was around 2007 when I first came up with the name with Clino Two, And I was just asking the question, like, how do you want to embody what we're trying to do? You've got carbon dioxide or CO2 is the is the culprit. What happens if you separate the, the, the carbon from the O2 and put something in the middle? I thought, ah, clean O2. And it just kind of like, okay. So we stuck with that, went through a few different... Uh, so I, I, the skill sets that everybody should be mindful of, unless you are in marketing, do not attempt to be a marketer. Uh, <laughs> hire those people. Because the stuff I came out with was, yeah, was not good, but- <laughs> at all uh, so we went we've been through three different brand identity changes over the course of well four if you count the one that i created um it looked like a pot leaf actually i had a little leaf on it it was supposed to be a yeah it was supposed to be like green but it anyways it, it, <laughs> don't do that <laughs> hire somebody <laughs> for the love of god hire somebody anyway uh, so we went through uh, a bunch of different uh re-brands. And just developing the business model and associating with brand awareness. Originally, there was just a commodity play. It wasn't until we had a moment of clarity where we realized that we really needed to create a tangible good that the brand sort of took off. Because clean O2 was never meant to have anything to do with cleaning. It was just pure chance that that happened so of course when we started creating it was a the soap was a marketing tool not a sales channel that Mm -hmm. we wanted to develop so my wife and i made a few bars of soap and said here's here's what you know what carbon capture could look like and then we had a couple of orders and those orders turned into quite a few more and then uh it just sort of took off from there to now we're able to do you know upwards of sixty thousand bars of soap. I think we could probably push hundred thousand bars of soap per month if uh, if needed, all because of this this pivot, this accidental pivot that we took place. So maintaining that brand and associating with it was part luck, part pivot, and part marketing. Mm-hmm.
1: so has has the I'm curious, has the consumer facing aspect of going you know directly to them? With the soap actually helped bring in business from the you know the boiler perspective the furnace perspective
0: not so much from the furnace and boiler perspective but certainly from the idea of creating tangible goods from recycled carbon there's a bit of a disconnect so one of the issues that we have and we still we're, we've overcome it by creating two different websites when somebody was asking questions about our technology they'd go to cleano2.ca and they'd look at them like oh I thought you were a carbon capture company, but all I see is soap. And we're like, oh, that's <laughs> a good point. So then we created this other website, CarbonX.com, for people who want to buy a CarbonX unit to learn more about how the technology can help their, their building a, a ESG portfolio. Um, so, yeah, we we've, we've recognize that you need to keep them sort of separate, but connected because you need both in mm-hmm. you know, order for this business model to work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fascinating because that's, um, that's obviously a, b- a big challenge is making sure people understand what's going on. It has to be very, very easy. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. I guess well, this is maybe, um, this is just something I'm always curious about because I've found out from many of the people on here that oftentimes putting carbon in a product can make the product better besides just reducing carbon, uh, you know, carbon footprint. But does inputting, does putting carbon into cleaning products actually increase the you know efficacy of those cleaner products
0: usually yeah absolutely uh, so it does a couple of things and it depends on the product that it's in uh, potassium carbon is a water softening agent so if it's in a bar of soap it's making a more silky uh more rich lather when you're using it on your skin um once again because it's a water softening agent if you're using it in car wash detergent uh it prevents spotting uh, if you're using it in laundry, it allows for a, a more wholesome cleaning uh, action when it when it puts it gets put through your um, um through your washing machine. So yeah, it's it's not just we're not just parking carbon at someplace simply because it you know it's just a novel thing to do. It actually has a purpose. There is reason for putting it in these things.
1: yeah, that to me is just mind blowing to you, honest. That's like we're we're doing so many things at once. We're saving people money we're creating another product out of it. Right. And also it's a better product. Like the fact that we didn't find this stuff sooner before climate change was really considered an issue is also, I mean, it's sad, but at the same time, I'm glad we're here. Right. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, I guess. um, Maybe this is like a a moot point, but some people will ask what happens with, you know, what, as these products get used, where does the carbon go? If it's, if it's kind of in a minimal form, like what happens there?
0: I feel like there should be like a, I don't know, like a buzzer on my desk or something, like every time I get asked that question, maybe a, like a, a points mechanism I get where I push the button and it goes up by a point every time I get asked that, because it is the most common asked question. And the answer is it stays permanently sequestered in the mineral that is in the, it's, it stays as a carbonate, it doesn't go anywhere. And the comparison would be, uh, look at the, the uh, Salt Lakes in Utah, um, potassium carbonate is, you know, it's a salt of of potassium. Um, You can dissolve it in water, but then when you wick the water away, or you evaporate the water, you're still left with the potassium carbonate, it comes out as a solid. So it doesn't go anywhere. And uh, there is two ways you could release the CO2. Uh, One, you could throw your bar of soap into a fire, kind of a weird thing to do, but I'm not here to judge. Uh, or you could throw it into, like, if you had a pail of hydrochloric acid, you could throw it in there, and that would cause the the, uh, the CO2 blue. Once again, if you're doing that, kind of weird, but no judgment for me. So, yeah, there you have to use energy. You have to force the CO2 out of the carbonate in order for that to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Is there, you know, obviously it's going into kind of the, you know, the wastewater supply, are there going to be ways that this could actually be, again, recaptured in the minimal form, you know, through municipalities, uh, I don't know, water treatment plants or something like that, that could help to bring it back out to be used again?
0: Um, not in our current format, but in technology that we're currently working on. That's about all I Interesting. can
1: Interesting. That's very fascinating. I love it. Um, I, lo- I love this stuff. This is fascinating. I think you, you're probably familiar with the Sharp Technologies folks as well. Like I, I think they have some of these similar types of things. So, yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe a cool. partnership to be had. Um, I'm keen, obviously Canada seems to be a little bit ahead on these things. Are there any incentives to, or regulations kind of around this stuff that help people, you know, seek out decarbonizing right now? Like what does the regulatory market look like? Do you see changes coming that will help um, drive more people to, to seek these technologies, et cetera?
0: Yeah. Uh, they're not here yet, but um you know, the cost per ton that uh, of CO2 produced is going up. I think they're forecasting you know, 170 bucks a ton. Uh, so there will be some significant incentives to want to adopt technologies like ours to, um, to help reduce emissions. In terms of incentives to bring it on board now, there are a few mechanisms. It all depends on what region you're in, what part of the world you're in and what the government is doing. There's some here in Alberta, like, uh, that, that are shaping up to help support offsetting the cost to install one of these units. But one of the things that we really focused on from cleano 2s perspective is to create a business model where we didn't want to be reliant on government subsidy in order to make this work. It has to be able to stand alone. Uh, we didn't want to be, you know, like the wind industry back in the 80s was heavily subsidized to the point where when the government changed its subsidies, a lot of those businesses really struggled to stay afloat um, not to diminish the important work of the wind industry i i'm, I'm not saying it to uh, to shine a poor light on them i'm just pointing out that i think for all clean tech solutions all climate tech solutions really need to be able to demonstrate their ability to stand on their own without incentives and then when those incentives become available they're you know they're they're a nice little extra a little bonus to have that you can share either with your customers or with your shareholders or as a company to hit your profit margins whatever mechanism you choose to use but they they can that can't be the driver mm-hmm. for for businesses to function
1: yeah are there i guess i don't know if there's something you you can speak to but i'm keen to understand if how the mechanisms of a carbon tax will work i know it's been debated a lot in canada i believe if i'm not mistaken and how it will work? Is it usually something that you have X amount you can emit, or you would actually get rebates on your taxes somehow if you if you don't emit it, or you were just charged a fee? Do you know how that usually will tend to work out?
0: Yeah. So the the model has changed substantially over the years. Basically, uh, it's it's for every ton of CO two that you produce, the money is then used to help support other activities that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So you would take that cost per ton, hundred bucks a ton depending on how much how many tons you produced in the course of the year, that money would then go into a pool, that pool would then go to support uh, technologies like ours or other technologies that could demonstrate a a meaningful way of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And that's kind of the whole, the way the mechanism is supposed to work at a a very high level. Um, There were other mechanisms where the early days when I was working in Northern Alberta, where you could purchase offsets other companies who were producing less so they could you could take their offsets and apply it to your bottom line so that you could just produce as much as you wanted because you've bought somebody else's offsets which i always thought that was kind of cheeky but um Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah. that i never i never quite understood that either that's kind of like so wait you have a limited amount you can pollute but only so much and then if yeah and
0: And then what's the baseline but then you just buy somebody else's offsets to reduce because you can either pay this much money if you just business as usual or you can buy these guys who did better than you did and just buy their offset so it still costs you but it costs you less less than than just not doing anything so it once again it boils down to down to down to money so i yeah i mean it's um, it's changed I, but
1: yeah i think it's interesting though the idea because the first time i i understood it that it made sense to me the carbon tax was in Tom Rand's book um, the case for climate capitalism i think is what's called And he explained, you know, could use that money to for to further research and development in the space and things like that. So I think it's, I think it's an interesting thing. Obviously, you know, many people are. I'd probably consider myself this too, but maybe less so. More and more, uh, just always skeptical of government (laughs) government run things, right? It's always difficult, but there's a lot of good things that come out of it, right? Because money with research and development, you know, for solar, if it was really required, if we didn't have that, we we wouldn't have low cost of solar the way we do for now. For for yeah,
0: I. I, I think government can be incredibly helpful for companies like ours, but it, it's on how you frame it and you know I once again coming back to the argument for economics, you should treat funding agencies through the government as a complement to the core business, mm-hmm. not treat the the government as the core business and you were just sort of sprinkling it with business to make it mm-hmm. Kind of. Yeah.
1: (laughs) To make it look like a capitalist. venture. Interesting. Okay. So then, um, we've sort of talked about talent a little bit, but I'm keen to understand this is one of my favorite topics is do you feel, or, you know, are the things you're seeing done in the education space, whether that be from, you know, early, early stage, you know, high school through, uh, you know, those early years or into the universities, is there a lot of work being done that's actually helping prepare people and get them the right kind of um, education and, and skill set, if we will, rather than just knowledge of actually being able to go into and help, you know, fill climate tech jobs, which
0: of which there are many. Uh, yes, I would say absolutely. And I've had the privilege of being able to take part in some of those discussions, whether it's the University of British Columbia's curriculum or the. Uh, a couple of colleges in town, uh, University of Calgary, uh, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, um, all sorts of of everything from from high school up to universities have all changed and added curriculum to help support this growing trend towards job growth creation for the clean tech uh, clean tech sector. So yes, the, but. And I I can say that because, you know, once again, I've been doing this, I've been chasing this since 2005. So I've seen a very clear uh, gain in traction in supporting youth towards recognizing that they're going to be the problem solvers because they're the ones that are inheriting all of our problems. So I think it's really important uh, to to do that. So yes, the answer is yes. That's a long-winded yes.
1: Yeah, I I think that's fascinating. One thing I'm curious about is, though, do you think that sometimes, I I don't know how it is in Canada, I've heard a lot better things about the universities in Canada than I have in the U.S., is are there sometimes where there's kind of an over-education of people, where they're getting four-year degrees to do things that are actually relatively simple, and they can get started in their career a lot sooner, making an impact, and then have a mentality of continued education to go beyond that, rather than spending all this time up front when you don't know what you want.
0: It's funny you should bring that up. I, I wish I could remember who I heard say this, but I thought it was, it, it, it really stuck with me. I'm gonna have to look it up and see if I can find out. Maybe, you know, um, I think it was a professor at one of the university universities in the States, I believe, who said, you know, we shouldn't be asking kids what they wanna be when they grow up. We should be asking them what problems do they wanna solve? Because then that helps frame their focus. Rather than saying, I'm going to be an engineer, it's I'm going to be an engineer because I want to solve this problem, or I'm going to become a lawyer because I want to solve this problem, or I'm going to become whatever job because I'm trying to help solve a, uh, help help solve a problem. So that's, um, so it's changing. It is changing. I can tell you from firsthand experience, and it's not just in Canada, it's in the U.S., as well, that the mindset around clean tech and climate tech is changing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. Obviously, I, I have an interesting background from that perspective I Did not go to university. So I'm always like fascinated to try to find people who didn't. Um, and you have a little bit uh, kind of unconventional background. Yep. I understand yourself included. Um, so this is interesting to me. I, I really feel that, I guess it's a hunch of mine that over the course of time, companies will start to be so short for talent, especially in some of these really technical areas that universities won't be able to keep up that they'll start training on their own. Right. And then having programs and partnerships amongst other similar types of companies to, to teach people, to get them straight into this, into the seat and doing things.
0: Well, and, and look at like there's MIT offers free courses that you can take. You don't need to attend. You just want to go to learn something. You can go online and learn really anything. Uh, so yeah, there's, 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 uh, becoming this awareness of tailored education towards the likes and dislikes and desires of each one of us who are all trying to find our place in the world. And, you know, guys like us, we, we struggled with that. I certainly did. And, you know, I, I suspect I'm a bit older than you. Um, It was very challenging that plumbers are a great example. And I, you know, I, I would say that the, the the trades are probably the most underutilized group of individuals, uh, certainly in North America, in terms of being problem solvers that can address these these big issues that we're that we're facing. We tend to look to universities and and colleges, but we don't look to trades for solutions. And we have all sorts of solutions that we can provide mm-hmm. meaningful worthwhile solutions that don't necessarily need to come from university Mm. or only from university. That's not to diminish, I have engineers that work here, I have chemists, I have people that went to university and I need them, but they're not the only people with solutions. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think everybody needs to be part of the, part of the entire solution, right? Because if we don't have trades people anymore, what's going to happen? Things are going to shut down, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, certainly I, I agree there. What One last thing, I'm just kind of keen to pick your brain out of it is with the, I guess you could say, advance of all of these carbon capture types of companies, right? You're, yours is not the only, there's many types of companies solving it in different ways and kind of creating this, you know, this commodity of carbon. Do you see anything's happening right now surrounding kind of developing a, Uh, I don't know if you'd call it a carbon market or like a carbon trading market or commodities kind of way that will support this, this entire industry, I guess you could say, or this entire kind of sector.
0: Yeah, uh, it's feels a lot like the Internet did during the late 80s or, you know, personal uh, smartphones did. in in the early 2000s, where it's it's like the Wild West. So, you know, from an investment standpoint, I think it's exciting because you get to, to help support the, um, the development of this, this thing that will eventually get to the point where we'll take it for granted, right? Just like the internet, we take it for granted. It's just always here. Whereas there was a time in my youth where that I mean, didn't exist. You wanted to talk to somebody, you had to, you know, you hop on the hop on a phone, we didn't have smartphones. Smartphones was the rotary dial on the, on the wall. Uh, but now it's, it's prolific. It's everywhere. And I think the carbon markets will be exactly that. It will be a market that is just here. It is part of our day-to-day life and it will seem foolish and silly that it wasn't there decades earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think this is fascinating. Some of these things get really uh, like out of hand for me to understand. I I'm actually in the process of reading through the smartest guys in the room, I think it's called the, the Enron book. And so it's, okay it's kind of, you know, an interesting similarity. Uh, Hopefully, you know, not that type of outcome, right? Um, But no, this is fascinating. I think maybe one last thing that did come up early in the show that I wanted to have you leave people with is for any people in an industry where, I guess it would be anybody in any industry, right? You never know that it's changing, right? So how do people who are tradespeople or just, you know, working away in their industry, what are the things that they can do to kind of pay attention to what's happening so that they can try to be on the cutting edge? Because I think a lot of people, you know, they get into a job and that's kind of, that's their job. And they don't really think too much about what what's changing, what's happening, unless they're really motivated to be kind of a leader in it. What are some things people can do? Because you obviously went through that process as a plumber.
0: Yeah. uh, So two things would be one, educate yourself. And I'm not saying go back to school and, you know, I'm saying, Use this wonderful platform that we're talking on here today as a means of sourcing information that you find interesting and maybe a possible lead towards solving something that you're trying to uh, resolve. But more importantly, beyond that is to know yourself, know what you are capable of, know how far you are willing to push uh, yourself to, to find that solution because it will challenge you in ways that you, you will not expect so yeah two things educate yourself and know yourself
1: i think that's great advice honestly i think that um that's maybe not in those same words but that's kind of the things i've lived by is try to always understand yourself it's the in my opinion the secret to living a happy life so i really i really appreciate you coming on this has been super fascinating um great conversation and definitely uh keen to see what you guys continue to do i think i'm gonna have to switch who i buy my soap from now um, and, um, looking forward to seeing your guys' continued, continued success.
0: Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Always uh, appreciate the opportunity to be able to tell our story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining today and for listening to this episode. Please, of course, let us know your thoughts on the show. Share this with somebody who might find it interesting. Perhaps, you know, somebody who is in fact a building owner and might be interested in implementing this technology, um, please, of course, reach out to Jason t- on LinkedIn to learn more about cleano 2 And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, please do subscribe and turn on notifications. We really also appreciate any ratings and reviews as it helps us to uh, expand our reach and get across to more listeners. And then, of course, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, feel free to reach out to me. I'm also glad to connect with people who want to collaborate in some way, maybe through a partnership agreement. Uh, my email can be found in the description, and feel free to join our link, our uh, Slack channel if you're interested in getting more involved and maybe having some discussions around the space or looking for opportunities. And then just a quick note on our next episode. This one's really exciting for me uh, to be able to bring to you. So this next episode is going to be with Peter Layden, and uh, Peter is a prolific writer and speaker who spends a lot of time kind of looking towards the future and, and perhaps not predicting, but kind of analyzing trends and helping to determine where things are going, right, kind of based on a lot of factual data. And um, so, just kind of a bit of background on him, early in his career, he, he ran Wired Magazine, and then he eventually authored the book, The Long Boom, and um, that kind of took off and helped him to continue doing more and more writing, looking at the future from a perspective of the future, so as if you're in the future, looking back, kind of telling a history lesson. So it's really interesting the way he shares a vision about how things can be. I think it's a very important aspect that we oftentimes kind of lose. Um, we don't really think about, right? If we if we look forward, there's all this speculation. But if we can go forward and then look backwards at what might be, it makes it a little bit easier to understand kind of the, the major uh, developments and rather than getting kind of stuck into the minute details. So really, really, really fascinating episode for me. Uh, I hope you enjoy that. That'll be coming out next next time in the podcast. But yeah, thank you again so much for listening, and we will see you next time on Clean Techies.